The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hi, everybody. How's the volume? My voice is a little soft, so we might need it up a little bit. Um, it, to me, uh, what's important is that I'm a spiritual friend, you know, so in terms of introductions, um, that's what I'm here to do tonight is to be a spiritual friend and uh, uh, more than anything that's that's my hope and uh, intention and uh, something else that might be helpful to know about me is that I'm a therapist so I tend to bring um, that some of that language and perspective into uh, sharing of the Dharma so and tonight um, what I want to talk about is um, bringing love to our experience of, of dukkha. Does, who knows what dukkha means? Do you know what dukkha means? Okay, so some, not so much. Dukkha is a, a Pali term um, that's often thought of as the word suffering, right? So you've all heard the word suffering, yes? Yeah. And, and so just to, and the, the nice thing about this word dukkha is that um, it doesn't have the same associations in language for us for the word suffering, right? So suffering, we often think about, um, you know, really, really difficult and hard and painful and unwanted. And, but dukkha has a much broader and truly the definition that the Buddha intended was a much broader feel. So everything from stress to discontent to, you know, being slightly troubled, irritated, discontent, uneasy, you know, um, to, you know, pretty horrible. So, um, so I use the term dukkha to reference all of those states. There can be very subtle states of not liking and discomfort to very extreme. And I want to just sort of say again, this idea is to bring love to the experience, to our experience, to our relationship with the dukkha, to our our stress, to our suffering. So I'm not asking you to love what's causing you pain necessarily but rather to bring love to your experience when you're relating to things that cause dukkha. And, and the reason that I'm wanting to share this topic is that for me, um, the term that came to me was um, my relationship to my suffering, how, what energy I bring to it can be like a linchpin. So a linchpin is something that is a pin that goes through the center of an axle, right, to keep a wheel in its place. And it also can mean something that's indispensable. And our relationship to how we're going, experiencing difficulty, stress, is really quite amazingly powerful. And in fact, indispensable on the path to freedom or freedom from suffering. The Buddha um, 
teaches and says in some of his suttas that bringing careful attention to suffering, you know, is, is the key, was the key to his awakening. And um, when we start, when we find that we're suffering, when we recognize the presence of suffering and we start to relate to that with this kind of caring, full, or love, attention, our suffering can start to, our experience and our relationship to suffering can start to change. And what, what can start to happen is that we, as we bring love and kindness and kind of wisdom to our experience of suffering, it starts to change what happens. And then as that starts to happen, we start to have faith. Faith starts to develop that if we relate and attend differently, um, it's going to help. And then when that starts to happen and we start to develop this faith, there's something else that comes, which is this this sense of gladness. I remember a, a very clear moment on a retreat where I was like recognized that I started to get happy, glad, when I would see my own suffering. It was quite a, a sort of surprising thing to recognize that by carefully attending over time and developing this faith that the reward was just in, increasing in its um, bounty in the sense of this gladness, this excitement <laughs> would be like, oh, wow, I'm seeing my suffering. <laughs> oh, my goodness, what is going on, Right. But it, it's held true. It's been a beautiful support. And this is what the Buddha discovered and taught, and this is the right way of going. And um, so my hope is uh, that I'll share some of that joy with you tonight and that you know I'll inspire whatever in you wants to bring suffering to an end for yourself and for others or maybe both even. So, um, I'm going to share some, if, if all goes as planned, and who knows, I'm going to share some parts of some suttas and talk a little bit about my relationship to the story and what it brings up for me. And, um, well, first I'm going to actually talk a little bit more about the Buddha and sort of this turning toward suffering and then some suttas, and then if we get there, maybe I'll explore the idea of um, cultivating careful attention, you know, love toward our dukkha. And um, if we really get there, maybe we'll even start talking about the right way of going and transcendental, transcendental dependent arising. Who knows where we'll go. So, um, so the Buddha, you know, was really interested in understanding suffering. He asked, what, what is it? Why do we suffer? He really wanted to figure it out. And um, there's this little suffering, it's called suffering sutta, suffering. And it just there's something about the rhythm and the words that are shared that um, I think communicate this there's this energy, you know, that's being transpired about this. And he says, 
he's talking to Sariputta, one of the other monks, and he says, Friend Sariputta, it is said, suffering, suffering. What now is suffering? There are, friend, these three kinds of suffering. The suffering due to pain, the suffering due to formations, meaning sort of the mental thinking that we do, and the conditions in life that are all forming, and it's a lot of life. And the suffering due to change, right? These are the three kinds of suffering. But friend, I love that, but friend, there is a path. There is a way for the full understanding of these three kinds of suffering. Is there a way? And yes, there is a path, friend. There is a way for the full understanding of these three kinds of suffering. Yes, yes, he says there's a way. It is, friend, this noble eightfold path that is, you know, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. The Buddha was really motivated to figure out, you know, to solve the problem of distress in the world. There's a, a sutta that comes before the one I read before in terms of timing in the Buddha's life, but um, before he was enlightenment, he, he was saying, gosh, it occurred to me, alas, this world has fallen into trouble. And goes on to say, when now will an escape be discerned from the suffering? And then it goes on and he says, and then at some point, through careful attention, there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. So it was by turning toward this distress, toward suffering, with this careful attention that his breakthrough occurred, that he became enlightened. And he says there was this right way of going, this noble eightfold path, and the four noble truths are part of that. He also said, and there's a wrong way of going. And the right way of going provides the solution to the problem. So, it's a, a, there were many people at his, in his time that, so it said, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a scholar, right? So I have to, I read the suttas and then I'll call my friends that are, that are scholars. <laughs> and I'll say, what about this? And what about that? You know, and, and, and it wasn't, you know, so I, I can't speak as a scholar. Again, I'm, a, I'm, your, I'm your spiritual friend who's curious and interested here, right? So just speaking, just want to be really clear that that's where I'm speaking from. But um, he, this is a pretty profound thing. This was, everybody else was doing all these practices and um, spiritual practices and things. And he was, the Buddha was the one that sort of said this, this suffering thing. We've got to figure out the suffering thing. What's going on here? So I feel indebted to him. <laughs> you know, I'm really grateful. And um, when I was reading through stuff, you know, that sort of talked about the Buddha really saying, yes, yes, this was important. This is important to attend to. I found this other sutta and... Um, it's a, a story about a monk named Radha. And he, he was um, 
I guess sitting, and then a, there were a group of um, wanderers that came, and they approached him. And you know, after after exchanging polite greetings, you know, um, they withdrew to one side and they asked the venerable Radha, "For what sake have you gone forth to cultivate the holy life under the recluse Gotama?" And the venerable Radha replied, I have gone forth to cultivate the holy life under the blessed one for the sake of abandoning dukkha. And they asked him again, what, what have you gone forth for? And he said, I have gone forth to cultivate the holy life for the sake of abandoning dukkha. He said, you know, and he said a little bit more about that. They didn't really like hearing this. So they, they kind of heard him and they were not pleased in their minds. They rose from their seats, blamed him, and left. And so he sat for a bit longer and then he thought, I better go talk to the Buddha. <laughs> Maybe I messed up here, you know. Maybe I got this all wrong. So he goes to the Buddha and, you know, pays respect and tells the Buddha the complete story. And he said, Blessed one, having proceeded to speak in this way, did I not incur a fault? Did I not misrepresent the Buddha? And sort of essentially expressed this doubt and this worry and this concern that, you know, maybe he really didn't get it right. But the Buddha said to him, You spoke truthfully. You did not misrepresent the Tagata. You spoke as you should speak. You spoke according to the Dharma. Speaking the Dharma in accordance with the Dharma. What is that, Radha? Bodily form is dukkha. One goes forth under me to cultivate the holy life for the sake of abandoning that dukkha. Radha was happy to hear this. (laughs) He was relieved. So with this sutta, as I was kind of contemplating it, you know... um, I thought, well, this is really, you know, this is very clear. I appreciate this. And I was sort of thinking about these three different people. And and then I sort of started to think about, well, wait a minute. This is kind of, when do I relate to dukkha like it's not important? When am I one of those visiting, you know, um, wanderers? That when dukkha comes up, I don't really think it's that important. Yeah? That happens... I don't always find within myself this aspiration, this joy to treat my dukkha with love. So I appreciated this sutta from this perspective as well, which is that, yeah, yeah, no, it, Radha got it right, and it's, a, it's easy to feel like to doubt yourself, and it's easy to be the doubter. And then sometimes maybe I'm, I can relate to it like I'm the Buddha, you know? Like sometimes maybe I can really see that, yeah, this is the purpose of the holy life. This is the purpose of this practice. There's another sutta that I want to share, and it's about kind of the opposite of careful attention. It's about, um, it's called um, inappropriate attention. And it goes like this. You enjoying the stories? 
I like the stories. I think they're cool. I've heard that on one occasion, a certain monk was dwelling in a forest thicket. Now at that time, he spent the days abiding, thinking evil, unskillful thoughts, i.e. thoughts of sensuality, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of doing harm. Then the devata, inhabiting the forest thicket, feeling sympathy for the monk, desiring his benefit, desiring to bring him to his senses, approached him and addressed him with this verse. From inappropriate attention, you're being chewed by your thoughts. I like that. Right? That feels right. (laughs) Right? Relinquishing what's inappropriate. Contemplate appropriately. Keeping your mind on the teacher, the dharma, the sangha, your virtues. You will arrive at joy, rapture, pleasure, without doubt. Then, saturated with joy, you will put an end to suffering and stress. The monk, chastened by the devata, came to his senses. So we've got this idea of careful attention, which I'm going to flush out a little bit more here, and the opposite of inappropriate attention, which in the sutta is sort of defined as being chewed by your thoughts, which I really like. Um, that, fe- that feels like what happens. <laughs> and relinquishing, you know, sort of, and, and that, that it's focusing on inappropriate things like um, lust, ill will, and doing harm, right? So just getting consumed by those things. They kind of work on us. They can chew on us, right? So what is then careful attention so first of all, one of the things that I noticed immediately with this term, careful attention, was how much I'd heard, that I'd heard people say, be careful, be careful, be careful. And I noticed in myself a sense of um, like a little contracting, a little bit like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I need to be careful, right? Just like... We say it a lot to kids, be careful. We have people who worry about us. They say, be careful. You know, there's, there's a certain worry that comes with this term often um, or anxiety that can come with this term. And, and in fact, when I looked at the definition, um, it includes a lot of these kinds of words. But this is our language, not the Buddha's language, Right? So I'm I'm just wanting to point this out because uh, um, ahimsa or careful attention, not ahimsa, but um, yonasakara, is careful attention. And careful attention to us, I'm guessing, means something different than it did to the Buddha in the Buddha's time. And partly because I find that if I just am careful with my dukkha, it doesn't help. It's not enough to just be careful. It needs to be full of caring. Full of caring. And, um, and so sometimes to me it's really helpful to kind of do this with language a little bit and think about, because we'll hear careful attention in the Dharma shared, right? We'll be told to bring careful attention to your experience. I don't know what your relationship is to the word careful, but for me it was worth really emphasizing 
and bringing in this idea of something that's more closely akin to love. Yeah. So I was thinking about, you know, we're sitting here together in this room. What would happen if all of our dukkha could come out and, you know, be here in this space? Did it all be, become visible and seen? You know, how many, how many of our things that we're suffering around would we see mirrored in other people that we can't see right now? But maybe just, just taking a moment to acknowledge it's just, I suffer you suffer, we suffer, you know, dukkha happens, stress happens, difficulty happens for everybody sitting here, right? Something we all share in common. And um, I just wonder, you know, how, I don't even know how often I bring true, real, caring, loving attention to my dukkha. There's so much of it, right? So much of it, so so much subtle dukkha. How about you? You know? How about when you're encountering someone else's dukkha, someone else's suffering? You know, that might be easier for you or harder for you at different times or depending on the person. Yeah. So... What, what can inspire us to bring a careful attention, a caring, full attention? I know that um, for me, there, I, have, um, I have a few different little simple things that I use that help me with different kinds of dukkha at different times. And earlier I mentioned that the Buddha said there were three kinds of suffering, three kinds of dukkha. So I'll share these with you. Um, One is the dukkha of pain, pain of pain, pain born of pain. So the idea of the the suffering is not that it shouldn't hurt when we get a shot, right? Like that's just normal part of life. But that how we relate to getting a shot um, is what the Buddha is talking about preventing us from adding to that pain. For example, I say this because... At some point, as an adult, I don't know why I thought this was a something to do, but I was—I had to get an immunization, and I braced my arm. Don't do it. <laughs> do not do it. It was unbelievable. I was anticipating the pain of, of uh, you know, an immunization, but this was like crazy bad pain that lasted a really, really long time. It did not pass. It was like hanging out, like my tensed muscles, my resistance to my suffering, to my 
the pain just made my suffering much worse. So the, the, the reference I like for this kind of suffering is pain times resistance equals our suffering. So it's like a multiplication, sort of a, you know, like we've, there's certain, you know, you're going to get a flat tire or you're going to get this. These, you're going to have emotional pain, physical pain. However much we resist it, the pain times our resistance is how much suffering we're going to have. That was a lot of suffering for an immunization that really could have been over in a blink. Then there's the pain associated with change. So we don't like it when pleasant moments pass or good things, you know, vacations end and people die and all these things in our life that are constantly changing. And um, so that's a, another way to kind of identify and think about where do you experience stress in your life. And um, for me, for that one, um, I, I really like this um, experience that I kind of connected to is, you know, like on some of the highways, like on Highway 1, on the side of the road, if you sort of go off too far, the road has these like bumps in it they're called rumble strips and it goes rumble strips to me this is sort of like that dukkha of change like there's an experience in the body that is just like it wakes you up right and that's the kind of the gift of dukkha coming up sometimes is it wakes you up right it wakes you up to what's going on and so for me a lot of times i relate to the dukkha of of change as like a rumble strip waking me up yep yep you get sick yep yep people die yep yep all these things happen and it's like you know thankful for those rumble strips so you don't go off the road and then the the third kind of suffering um has to do with sort of formations, um, the upkeep of life, um, the the kind of stories that we create and tell ourselves, and um, it's it's also just like the 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 I, this experience of life of like I've got to clean again. Are you kidding? And then cook, and then eat, and then go to bed, and I have to set my alarm and go to work, and like do this, and oh my kid needs this, and I need that. It's just like this relentlessness of life, just this just relentlessness, and then our thinking, right? The relentlessness of our thinking and ruminating mind, how it can get going. And for me, the the um, sort of inspirational way of relating to that that helps me find that love is this quote by Jane Hirschfield, and she's a Zen practitioner and poet, and she has this quote that is. Um, Suffering is to beauty, suffering is to beauty as thirst is to water. So suffering is to beauty as thirst is to water. And so essentially, you know, in its most simple form, when we think about when we get thirsty, it's our body telling us we need to get something to drink. We need to take care of our body, right? And um, in in a very simple way, if we can pay attention to when we have suffering and we bring a kind and loving attention to it, 
It can help us not increase our suffering, and it can help us bring this wise, kind attention to our experience that can lead to faith and gladness and joy and much more. But the other thing I like about this quote is that we don't always listen to our, our thirst, do we? We don't always go get water when we're thirsty. In fact, if I did that, I'd be taking a drink right now. And so I will. <laughs> and so we can, it's something that we can ignore. You know, and this is the kind of, this, there's a way in which we can kind of ignore our suffering. We don't pay attention to it. And it's not going to lead us to beauty if we're ignoring it, for sure. And ignoring our thirst or not paying attention or not listening, right? Not being receptive to what signals we're getting. Not going to help us take care of our body. And not only that, but if we're really not in a good mind state, we might go get a Diet Coke or a coffee instead of drinking water, which makes us dehydrated, actually. The caffeine, right? So we're thirsty, but we drink something that makes us more dehydrated. And in the same way, we can sort of kind of ignore our suffering and not, you know, and, and do wrong things that are trying to sort of address it, but don't really help and can make it worse. Yeah? Does that make sense? So what I like about this saying is that it really is true. It can lead to great beauty just like thirst can lead to water. And we have to be paying attention. We have to be willing to listen, and then we have to be willing to respond in a careful and wise way to what, what's coming up for us. And this kind of, um, you know, formation, suffering deformations is, is something that can be so chronic and so steady. It's very easy, I think, to get into a place where we aren't, we aren't really attending to it, to the suffering in the way that we could. So, um, so I thought I'd tell. Um, this is really a very pretty really a pretty simple story but i can highlight i can highlight this process through telling this story about a situation that came up in my life and um a situation where i was really grateful that i was able to attend to it uh, without regret and um be there you know and it was uh, my 19 year old daughter had gone off to college and she came back for the summer and said, I'm not going back. And, you know, as a parent, um, it's kind of a big deal. First of all, you want your kid to go off and be successful. And you don't want him home making a mess and being unhappy. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, this is part of growing up, right? Is like people having to find their right way. So... Um, it really wasn't something I was expecting. And I noticed that a lot of stuff was coming up for me. I was feeling pretty upset and afraid, right? There was this fear coming up around this. And 
this clinging, this idea of wanting her to stay in school. I want you to stay in school. Um, and, it, it, you know, I could either become the mom that pushed and said, you know, no, you have to do this, you have to go to school, you have to stay. Um, or I could become the mom that sort of was like, well, right, I, you have to back up, let go of what you're wanting to have happen, and figure out how do you support this person who's finding their path, finding their own way, Right? So that was one of those linchpin moments, right? That was a linchpin moment where I could see my own suffering was what I wanted, what I was clinging to, what I was craving was for her to have this experience and for me to be this mom that could help her to go do these things. But I could see that if I did that, I would regret it because it was going to put distance between myself and my daughter and I was very unlikely going to be successful and it was going to create a lot of conflict. So that, that was a moment of bringing a lot of love and care and attention to myself and to her, right? And this changed so much what started to happen between she and I and in our relationship. And um, it allowed for, you know, her to have faith in me that I could support her, Right? It created a sense of gladness and relief in me because I didn't have to regret what I, how I acted or how I behaved. And I found in myself the capacity to trust in her goodness, to trust in her capacity, and to trust that she would find her own way. And, you know, there was a lot of joy in that. And a lot of ease came from that process of accepting and not fighting. And, and then happiness. Because she was happy. She could feel supported. She felt heard. She felt seen. Love happened, right? Intimacy happened. And, you know, this is what, you know, the Buddha says is the right way of going. When we start to relate, there's this natural process that occurs. When we start to relate to our suffering and our clinging and our sort of creating these things, that if we relate to them with this careful or caring full attention, that one stage flows into the next. One stage fills up the next stage, going from the near shore to the far shore. That it can take us to freedom in practice. In life. So, um, this is sort of poetic too for me, and it's a discourse on volition and it's related to this. And so, I wanted to sort of read this as a sort of as we're coming to an end, as almost like a meditation Um, to just invite you to sort of see and feel and find in yourself if, if you resonate with any any part of this sort of progressive process. I know that for me, sometimes in working with clients, I see this starting to happen for them. I see them starting to, like, they'll come back and they'll be like, hey, Tanya, I noticed this thing, you know? And, like, I'm starting to trust. There's the faith, right? It's like, oh, yes, yes. 
And then there's this gladness, right? And with the gladness comes this energy, this energy to address and be present and to sort of stay on this path. So just see if you, if anything comes up for you in any way. Bhikkhus, for a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous, no volition need to be exerted. Let non-regret arise in me. It is natural that non-regret arises in a virtuous person or one whose behavior is virtuous. For one without regret, no volition need be exerted. Let gladness arise in me. It is natural that gladness arises in one without regret. For one who is glad, no volition need be exerted. Let joy arise in me. It is natural that joy arises in one who is glad. For one with a joyous mind, no volition need be exerted. Let my body be tranquil. It is natural that the body of one with a joyous mind is tranquil. For one with a tranquil in body, no volition need be exerted. Let me feel happiness. It is natural that one tranquil in body feels happiness. It is natural. For one feeling happiness, no volition, no effort is needed. Let my mind be concentrated. It is natural that the mind of one feeling happiness is concentrated. For one who is concentrated, no volition need be exerted. Let me know and see things as they really are. It is natural that one who is concentrated knows and sees things as they really are. For one who knows and sees things as they really are, no volition need be exerted. Let me be disenchanted and dispassionate. It is natural that one who knows and sees things as they really are is disenchanted and dispassionate. So freed from lust, freed from getting enchanted with our ideas and notions and fears, this is what occurs. For one who is disenchanted and dispassionate, no volition need be exerted. Let me realize the knowledge and vision of liberation. It is natural that one who is disenchanted and dispassionate realizes the knowledge and vision of liberation. Just as bhikkhus, when rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountain top, the water flows down along the slope and fills the cleft, gullies and creeks. These being full fill up the pools. These being full fill up the lakes. These being full fill up the streams. These being full fill up the rivers. And these being full fill up the great ocean. So too with ignorance as a proximate cause. 
mental formations come to be and consciousness but when we come to suffering and we see suffering with this caring full attention faith can arise non-regret can arise and this whole process of gladness and joy and tranquility and happiness concentration they can flow they can flow may they flow in you thank you